cartoon comic. So just picture with me a church billboard advertising its ministry. Now, in some ways I thought this was funny, but in some ways it's also, for me, it was incredibly sad. Because here's what the sign reads. At the top of the sign it says, You Church Light. They, they said that this church claims it has everything you've wanted in a church and less. 25% fewer commitments, home of the 7% tithe, 15-minute sermons, 45-minute services, and they only practice eight commandments, and of course it's your choice, and they use just three spiritual laws. You can laugh if you think it's funny, but if you think it's sad, I understand. It's sad because... That is the experience, sadly, for many in the modern church today. There is no active conscience. There's no feeding of your mind. There's no opening of the heart. There's no commitment. And as a result, no real faith. And this is James' concern. James is really concerned about this. And in the, the paragraph we're going to look at today, James discusses for us this relationship between your faith and your works. There needs to be a connection. And this is a very important discussion because if we are wrong in this matter, you are jeopardizing the most important thing you have, which is your eternal salvation. Your eternal soul is at stake because of this connection here between your faith and your works. So what kind of faith you have is important. What kind of faith... It really saves a person is something that James is going to answer for us today. It's necessary to perform good works. But is it necessary to perform good works in order to be saved? James is going to answer that. How can a person tell whether or not he's exercising true saving faith? How do you know if you're going to heaven? And James is answering these questions here by explaining to us there's only two kinds of faith. If you're not, you don't have the notes, you can take notes today. There's only two kinds of faith. And only one of those is going to get you to heaven. Only one of them. Only one of them is true saving faith. So I'm going to read from the words of the living God from James 2, verse 14. James 2, verse 14. comes right after the book of Hebrews. Verse 14 says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? 
you see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Oh, James is a great master communicator. He shows us two ways, two two phase, two face, sorry. So here's a proposition for you from this text here today. And here's what God wants you to do, friends. God wants your faith to produce genuine works. He wants your faith to produce genuine works. Or if, if I put it in another sentence as a main idea, here's what I have on my paper, that real faith produces genuine works. Real faith produces genuine works. So James shows us two kinds of faith. The first one he mentions here is dead faith. There is such a thing as dead faith. It's characterized by three things. Uh, I like the way one commentator put it. He, he said that, number one, that dead faith is characterized by empty confession. It's characterized by empty confession. You'll notice verse 14. Ask a very important question. What good is it, my brothers or brethren, Christians, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? So notice that phrase there in verse 14, if someone says. Keyword if. You say, why? Why is that important? Well, that, that particular phrase there is governing the interpretation of the entire passage. So James does not say that this person actually has saving faith, but that he claims to have saving faith. Big difference. Big difference. So what is it? What's faith? What is faith? Well, no particular kind of faith is mentioned here, but the context indicates it refers to acknowledgement that one believes the basic truths of the gospel, the, the, the basic doctrines of the good news, if you will. Well, in any case, the, the theology of a person's faith is not in question here. The issue is that he has no works. No works. So what kind of works might James have in mind? Glad you asked that question. Well, no particular kind of works is specified for us in this text. But if you read the entire book of James, you might have an idea of what he's talking about. So if we look at James, we've, we've already learned some of these things so far in chapter 1. But let me give you a, a bird's eye view quickly as we think of the book of James. Some godly works that James has, has already mentioned for us is endurance, perseverance under trial, purity of life, the obedience to Scripture, compassion for the needy, and impartiality. He's going to go on to tell us in chapter 3 that you need to control your tongue, humility in chapter 4, truthfulness in chapter 4, and patience in chapter 5. So these are just some of the good works that 
should be evidence, should be shown in our life, showing that our faith is real. But if you have an empty confession, then those won't be shown. So my friend, do you understand the point James is making? See, people with dead faith are substituting their words for their deeds. They know the correct vocabulary to use when they pray. See, there are people who can sound like a godly Christian in their prayers, but are just empty confession inward. Oh, they can write out a, write out a testimony of salvation, <laughs> but they're not saved. There are people who can quote the Bible to you, but they're not saved. See, their walk does not measure up to their talk. See, they think that their words are as good as their works, but they're clearly wrong. See, James is somebody who opposes what is called easy believism. It is a plague that has infected Christ's church today called easy believism, where it's just, it's, it's easy to come to Christ. It's easy. I just make a confession. I just make a profession of faith. I sign a card. I say a prayer. And now I'm in the kingdom of God. Really? Jesus doesn't believe that. In fact, look what Jesus says. You don't enter his kingdom by just saying some words, by saying a prayer. In fact, look what Jesus says. Not everyone who says, says. That's the empty confession. Notice you're speaking to Jesus here, because Jesus says not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Look what Jesus says next. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow, that's, that is a frightening text from the great master teacher himself. See, empty confession means nothing to Jesus. My friend, does Jesus know you? He does know you. So, beware of empty confession. The second characteristic of dead faith is false compassion. False compassion. See, what you, you say, well, False compassion, what is that? <laughs> Glad you asked, because James tells us it's, the, it's a verbal concern, only a verbal concern, that is, uh, for, for those in need, that is basically a hypocritical sham. It's just a hypocritical sham. See, James gives a very simple illustration for us here in verse 15. So you, if you look at verse 15, he says, we have a brother or a sister who comes... And, and they come into the assembly, and notice just how needy is this person. James tells you this is a needy person. This person is insufficiently clothed, suggesting that the person is cold and he's miserable due to a lack of proper clothing. And, and, and it's more than that. Notice the person is also in need of daily food, verse 15 says. Daily food is lacking, so this person is insufficiently nourished 
doesn't have the normal, healthy living environment in order for this person to thrive. And so the reference here is to those who are deprived of the necessities of life. Food and clothing. They're deprived of those. And you say, well, did anybody in the congregation notice? Yeah. (laughs) The person with the dead faith noticed that there's a person who's lacking the necessities of life. Well, how did that person respond? James tells us he didn't do anything to meet the person's needs. He did nothing. All he did was just throw out a few pious words to this person. Notice what does James say? He says in verse 16. The the person with the dead faith in verse 16 says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Basically, in in my modern day English, go in peace is just similar to saying to someone, God bless you. God bless you. I mean, that, that sounds wonderful, doesn't it? God bless you. Be warmed and filled is like saying, well, God take care of you, brother, sister. And James says, well, what good is that? What good is that? They still walk out the door in need. They still need food, and they still need clothing. And James actually answers that question. He says it's actually worthless. Why? Because the visitor went away still in need. And as believers in Christ, we actually have an obligation to help people in need. And it doesn't matter who they may be. Because look what Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says, As we have therefore opportunity, let us do good to all men, and especially unto them, who are of the household of faith. Notice what God says, especially when a Christian walks into your environment, you must meet their needs. And so to help a person in need is actually loving that that neighbor as you love yourself. It's an expression of love. And the Apostle John emphasized that very aspect of good works in 1 John 3, verse 17. Look what he says. He says, if anybody has the world's goods and he sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So notice the the opposite here of a dead faith. The person with dead faith is has only an intellectual experience. In his mind, he knows the doctrines of salvation, but this person has never actually submitted himself to God and has never trusted Christ for salvation. So my friend, beware of mere intellectual faith. No man can come to Christ by faith and remain the same any more than, well, look look at this, I put a sign up here for you. Can you come into conduct, or contact sorry, with 220-volt wire and remain the same? It will affect you. It is going to affect you. Can you come in contact with the creator of the universe and remain un- uh, unchanged? No. <laughs> no way. Dead faith is counterfeit faith and lulls a person into a a false 
confidence of eternal life. So James is characterizing for us a dead faith. He's already shown us one. So so I ask you, friend, do you have false compassion? Do you have false compassion? Because that is a sign or a characteristic of dead faith. But there's a third one. James says that dead faith is characterized by shallow conviction. It's characterized by shallow conviction. Notice verse 18, because you say, what is a shallow conviction? (laughs) Glad you asked. Because James knows what people think. He knows, based on the Holy Spirit, he says, but someone's going to say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. And he goes to give us a shocking illustration here. See, you say, what, what's a shallow conviction? It's, it's a recognition of certain facts about God and about His Word without submission to either of those. And, and so, James gets his point across by going into verse 19, and he, give, he illustrates it by using demons. <laughs> Look at that. Verse 19, it says, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Isn't that shocking? God says demons have faith. Ooh. Demons have faith. Yes, they do. And so James uses the demons here as an illustration. And it it just shocks me to think, yeah, they have faith, and, and they actually believe some things. They know some things. You say, well, what do they believe? What, what, what is it that they're believing? Well, for one thing, notice what James says. They believe in the existence of God. There's no such thing as an honest atheist. There is no demon that is an atheist or agnostic. Because they know that God exists, because God says so right here. You believe that God is one. They believe that. They believe in the deity of Christ. Just read the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They they knew who Christ was before he even opened his mouth. They, They knew who Christ was when he was here on earth. And they actually bore witness to his deity. He they knew he was the Son of God. They believe in the existence of a place of eternal punishment called hell. They believe in it. They didn't want to go there. And they told Christ that on on several occasions. They also believe that Jesus Christ is the judge, the great judge. Those are just some of the things we see in the Gospels they believed. They submit to the power of His Word. When Jesus commands them to go into pigs, they obey. So the demons believe, but their faith is dead. And so the man with dead faith was touched only by his intellect. But notice the demons are also touched in their emotions because they believe, notice the next words, and they shudder. They shudder. Their belief affects them. They believe and tremble. And it is not a saving experience, by the way, to believe and tremble. It is not a saving experience to have emotions based on what you believe. See, a a profession of faith is not proof of your salvation. It's not. You can profess yourself to be a car, but that doesn't make you a car. 
You can profess yourself to be, I don't know, whatever you want to be, but it doesn't make you that. See, a person can be enlightened in their mind, and you can even be stirred in your heart and still be lost forever. And this is frightening, and this is my concern for you, because I'm sure there's got to be at least one person sitting here who has a dead faith. At least one of you has a dead faith. And I'm concerned for you, friend, because true saving faith involves something more It's more than just the intellect. It's more than just having some emotions. It's something that can be seen and recognized. And God says, it's a changed life. Christ will affect your life. And James has introduced us here to a kind of faith that can never save you. You cannot save the sinner. It's a dead faith. But there is a faith that can save you. James goes on to tell us about a genuine faith. Genuine faith is the only one that's ever going to get you to heaven. It's the only one that's going to give you an eternal salvation. So let's talk about the genuine faith. What is genuine faith? Well, genuine faith is faith that's real. It's a faith that actually has power. It's a faith that results in a changed life. It's faith, by the way, only in the right object. The object of your faith is absolutely crucial. Absolutely crucial. For example, think of it this way. Think of a man somewhere in the jungles of South America somewhere who's bowing before an idol of stone and he's putting his complete trust in the idol of stone. But he's receiving no help from his idol. And it doesn't matter how much faith a person can generate... If it's not directed at the right object, then guess what? What does it accomplish? Nothing. The words, I believe, might be a good testimony for you. Maybe a testimony of of a lot of sincere people, but the big question is not, I believe, but the big question is, in whom do you believe? In whom do you believe? In other words, what do you believe? See, we're not saved by faith in faith. Faith in faith saves no one. In fact, it damns a lot of people to hell. See, we're saved by faith in Christ as it's revealed in the Holy Word of God. So, And so James is illustrating the doctrine of true saving faith, and he's going to give you two real people to illustrate his point. He's a, he's a master illustrator. That's one of the things I love about James. I don't have to come up with illustrations. He he gives them for us here. And he's going to give you two very well-known people in Israel's history. And by the way, they they couldn't be complete. They are so completely different. It's unbelievable. Uh, Just think about it. You have Abraham and Rahab. Can you get any more different? Yeah. I mean, you have Abraham, who's a Jew. You have Rahab, who's a Gentile. Abraham's a godly man. You have Rahab, who is a sinful woman. The Bible calls her a harlot or prostitute. Abraham's described here as a friend of God. And Rahab belonged to the enemies of God. So what did they have in common? One thing. They exercised saving faith in God. That was what was in common. So look at the first example of genuine faith here. In James, and James gives us the father of Israel, and his name is Abraham. 
Well, this gets into a sticky situation because some people wonder, well, when was Abraham saved? Glad you asked that. When was Abraham saved? Well, let's, let's go back because James actually quotes Genesis in Romans. Uh, but, but really going back to Genesis. So when was Abraham saved? Well, go back to Genesis 15. Please turn in your Bibles Genesis 15. You can see what James is quoting here for us. And in Genesis 15, we get the background facts for the illustration that James is using. So God called Abraham out of the Ur of the Chaldees, and he led him to Canaan, and he made of him the great nation of Israel. And it was through Israel that God would eventually bring into the world our great Savior, Jesus Christ. And so Abraham's salvation experience is actually recorded for us in Genesis 15. So that's why we're going to read verse 1. Genesis 15, verse 1. It says, After these things, the word of Yahweh came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of Yahweh came to him, This man shall be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars, if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed Yahweh, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Look at that word there, verse 6, counted. Very important word, because Paul's going to use that in Romans chapter 4. The word counted is a legal or a financial term. It just simply means to put to one's account. So Abraham, or Abram, was a sinner. Abram's spiritual bank account was empty. In fact, it was worse than that. He owed a lot of money, which he could never pay back. He was bankrupt. But the Bible says he trusted God, and as a result of that, God put righteousness on Abram's account. Abram did not work for that righteousness, notice. What did he do? He believed. And so he received it as a gift from God. And the Bible says he was declared righteous by faith alone. He was justified by faith alone. And so that's, that's what uh, Paul uses in Romans chapter 4. So let me just point this out to you on the screen here. Romans 4 verse 1 says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? And then he quotes Genesis 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So, justification here is an important doctrine in the Bible. Justification is the act of God whereby He declares believing sinners to be righteous. 
you are imputed the righteousness of Christ. It's all on the basis of Christ's finished work when He died and rose again. So it's not a process, friend. It's an act. It's an act. It's not something the sinner does. It's something that God does for the sinner when the sinner trusts Christ, when the sinner believes Christ. It's a once-for-all event, and that can never change. Never. So how can you tell if a person's justified by faith if this transaction takes place between the sinner and God privately? How do you know if somebody's saved? Well, Abraham's example answers that important question. That's the heart that James is getting at here because the justified person has a changed life and now they're obeying God's will and so their faith is demonstrated by their works. So James used another event in Abraham's life to show this. And this event is actually over in chapter 22. Look at Genesis chapter 22. Now this particular event here in James 22, no, not James, Genesis 22, James is talking about this event here. It's an event that took many years after Abraham's conversion. So Abraham is already a believer in God. And the event is the offering up of his son Isaac on the altar. So look at Genesis 22, verse 1. Genesis 22, verse 1 says, After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham! And he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place from afar. There Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, Jehovah Jireh, God, will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of Yahweh called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham! He said, Here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes, and he looked, and behold, behind him was a ram 
caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place Yahweh will provide, or Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. And as it is said this day, on the mount of Yahweh it shall be provided. So that's the event that James is illustrating for us so we understand what genuine faith looks like. Genuine faith produces works. So how can you tell if a person is justified by faith if the transaction actually takes place between the sinner and God privately? Well, Abraham shows us it shows in the changed life. It shows in the works. This event took place, may I remind you, after his conversion. But did that work save Abraham? No. No, he, he was not saved by obeying God's very difficult command. His obedience proved, though, he was already saved. He had already believed. In fact, he was saved in chapter 15. By the way, there's a perfect relationship here between faith and works. As somebody has said before me, Abraham was not saved by faith plus works, but he was saved by a faith that works. He was saved by a faith that works. In other words, genuine faith produces works. So how was Abraham justified by works then when he had already been justified by faith? I'm glad you asked. Because Paul addresses that in Romans 4 again, verse 18. Look at this. He says, In hope he, that's Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in the faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. So that's what Paul says in Romans 4. So, by faith, follow follow the argument. By faith, he was justified before God, and his righteousness declared, but notice it's by works, that he was justified before men and his righteousness was demonstrated to everybody. And so it's true that no human, of course, no human being, actually saw Abraham put his son on the altar. It was just Abraham and Isaac. But the inspired record there in Genesis 22 enables us now to see the event and we're able to witness Abraham's faith. And how was it demonstrated? By his works. You know he's a believer because God's testing him, and God shows Abraham's really a believer. 
So Abraham is a glorious testimony of someone who had genuine faith and he showed it by his works. Well, let's go to the other extreme because most of us aren't the father of great nations like Israel. How about if you're a prostitute and you're a Gentile? Well, the second example given of genuine faith is Rahab and she's mentioned in verse 25 of James chapter 2. Going back to James 2. And James says in verse 25 that in the same way was not also Abraham or Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. So if you want the full story, go back to the book of Joshua. Joshua tells the background. And, and there we see the nation of Israel is about to invade the promised land that God has given to them. And the first city they come to is Jericho. And so Joshua, the great commander of Israel, sends out spies into land to to see what it's like. And so the spies come into Jericho, and, and of course they meet Rahab there. And it's a very exciting story. I encourage you to read it this afternoon. But in that story, we see one of the great... Bible stories showing us what true saving faith looks like. And in fact, did you know she actually shows up again in Hebrews chapter 11? Yeah, look at this. Hebrews 11 says this, verse 31. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. So is she saved by her good works or are the good works showing she is a true believer? The, the last one, right? There is fruit on the tree showing that the tree is alive. So Rahab heard the word. She knew her city was condemned. And that truth, of course, affected her as well as the other citizens of Jericho. And the Bible says their hearts melted as a result of God's people invading the land. Rahab responded with her mind and her emotions But she also responded with her will. See, all the other citizens understood in their mind what's going on, and their emotions were affected, but their wills did nothing. Only Rahab's will was affected, and her family. So she responds with her will. She did something about it, and what does she do? The Bible says she risked her life to protect those Jewish spies. And she further risked her life by sharing the good news with her other family members. And the story is so awesome because when you come to the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, did you know, have you ever noticed that Rahab's name shows up in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? She is an ancestress of Jesus. Rahab is in Jesus' family tree. How cool is that? So Rahab could have had a dead faith. She could have had an intellectual experience. She could have seen the Israelites walking around the walls of Jericho. Yeah, I see them, I believe, and then done nothing. But she exercised genuine faith, and her mind knew the truth, her heart stirred by that truth, and her will acted on that truth. That's what made her different from everybody else. She proved her faith by her works. And so when you realize that there was only a small 
amount of information that Rahab had. And you can see how the, truly marvelous it was that she had real faith. Today we have the full revelation of God. You, you, you have the Bible. The entire Bible. All 66 books of the Old Testament and New Testament. And if you're like me, you have multiple copies. You have huge resources at, at your fingertips. We have the full revelation of God in His Word. He's given us the full revelation through His Son. We, we live on the other side of Calvary. We have the Holy Spirit today convicting us and teaching us His Word. And her faith is an indictment against the unbelief of sinners today. And James 2 emphasized that the, the mature Christian is one who does something with the truth. A mature Christian practices the truth. You don't just merely hold on to some ancient doctrines. He practices the doctrines in his everyday life. Friend, do you do that? Does the truth affect you? Does your will act out the truth? It's the genuine faith of people like Abraham and women like Rahab that show us that reality. It, it's a faith that changes your life and it goes to work for God. Not to save you, but because you love God and everything He's already done for you. And so it's important that each professing Christian then examine their life Look at your heart. Ask God to show you what is inside you. What is your life really like? Do you possess true saving faith? Did you, did you know you're actually commanded to do this? You say, where? I'm glad you asked. Look at this. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourselves whether you are in the faith. Prove your own selves. Prove it. How do you prove it? James says, by your works. Look at yourself. Pray to God. Ask Him to show you, are you real? Are you genuine? Or are you a fake? Are you like the demons? You, you know things about God, that He's one. and you, you know He has great power. And they shuddered, but they didn't believe. See, friends, why should you examine yourself why do you need to prove yourself? Because one of your enemies, Satan, is a great deceiver. In fact, Jesus called him the father of lies. <laughs> and one of his great devices is imitation. He loves imitating God's creation, but he hates God's creation, so he corrupts it. He corrupts it. And so if he can, he can convince a person that counterfeit counterfeit faith is true and guess what he has that person right where he wants them he has you where he wants you and your soul is condemned because of it so you say well how do i know how am i how do i know if i'm deceived well here's some questions to think about friends think think deeply about these questions these are some questions you can use to examine yourself to prove your own selves Look at your heart. Number one. Here's the first question. Was there a time when I honestly realized I was a sinner and I admitted it to myself and God?
You don't have to remember the date, but there must be a specific time where you admitted it and you confessed the reality of it. Just think about that. Because this shows, are you, are you real or fake? Number two. Number two, do I truly understand the gospel? In other words, do I believe, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, Christ died for my sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and He rose again according to the Scriptures. Do you believe that? Number three, did I sincerely repent of my sins and turn from them? Turning from them shows the reality that you really do have a change of mind in regard to your sin. Have you done that? Number four, have I trusted Christ alone for my salvation? Have I trusted Christ alone for my salvation? See, if you put Christ plus blank equals salvation, you're on your way to hell. You can't be a believer and add something to Christ. Number five, is worship of God a delight to me? Think about that. Number six, last one. Am I ready for Christ's return? Christ could come back today, right now. He could. I don't know if he will or not. I can't say that. Anybody who tries it is a fool. He's proved many people wrong over the years. But he's coming. He said he is. Do you believe that? Are you ready? A real believer is ready. If you're not ready, you're probably an unbeliever. So these are just some some questions. You think about them. Pray for God to reveal reality to you. Because it's not enough to profess. Not enough. So may God enable you to see if you have genuine faith. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you enable us to have genuine faith? Those who have dead faith, would you show them their dead faith? Please open their spiritual eyes that they would see what is reality for them. May we not be deceived by Satan in this world, in our flesh, but may we do as 2 Corinthians 13 has told us to do here, examine ourselves, prove our own selves. Are, are we really in the faith, the genuine faith? Do we have genuine faith in Christ alone? And so, may we see the fruit as Jesus told us to be fruit inspectors. May we, may we look for that fruit and see that, that there is only one type of soil that bears genuine 
fruit. May we be that kind of soil. Give us ears to hear. Give us hearts that are receptive to you and your word. May we really believe what we really believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.